Do vegans need to ensure they're always buying from 100% vegan companies? Can you guess the number one reason people stopped being vegan after Veganuary? And should a vegan educator really be encouraging people to argue with meat eaters? Anyway, that's enough of the falafel. I'm Anthony, he's Richard, and it's time for episode 5 of Vegan Week. Thanks for joining us for episode five of Vegan Week, sponsored by the fabulous people at Fire and Flow Coffee, a specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswolds with a fully vegan coffee shop on site. Fire and Flow is a vegan founded company run by three friends, Shah, Callum and Phil. We are incredibly grateful for their backing of this episode. And a bit later in the show, we'll tell you a bit more about how you can get hold of their delicious coffee and tea. But if I talk about coffee much longer, you'll hear a hangry rumbling in the background because my co-host today is a verified coffee monster. He's an espresso expert, a cappuccino connoisseur and the best barista in town. It's Richard. Wow. Thanks very much. Hey, everyone. I'm delighted to be here for another hour of our vegan news chit chat. Anthony, we have a lot of great stuff to get through this week, including a discussion topic decided by one of our listeners. Yeah, I can't wait for that one. We'll be discussing whether vegans should be buying from 100% vegan companies. That's in the second half of the show, but this is the Vegan Week podcast. So the first part of our show is always dedicated to a rundown and commentary on our top 10 vegan news stories from the week. Let's do it. Okay, we've selected 10 news stories that have been released in the last seven days, all of which relate to veganism, animal rights or outcomes for animals. Okay, let's start with some news from Germany that sounds very promising. From Meat Management, vegan products to be sold at the same price as meat counterparts in little German stores. Yeah, this is the news that Lidl Germany is adjusting the pricing of products in its Vimondo vegan range to align the prices with that of its comparable meat products. They've announced that this week. The range was introduced by Lidl in 2020. It now includes up to 650 vegan products in over 3,000 Lidl branches. And this new change doesn't just affect the price. So they're making the price the same, but meat alternatives will also be placed in the immediate vicinity of their animal counterparts, so in the same section of the shop, basically. Lidl believes that making plant-based products the same price as meat products will promote conscious and sustainable consumption, as customers may not be deterred by product price, also stating that it's based its decision of the scientific findings of the Planetary Health Diet Index. Rich, that's a massive obstacle that they're removing, arguably the biggest obstacle. I mean, you, you could say in a capitalist society like that the price of something is is the biggest factor, arguably. Oh, yes. And more with the inflation that we're having nowadays, not only in the UK, but in many places, food prices have gone up. So if you, if, if you can save the pound or two, and most importantly, if you see that the price is the same, you might think, well, I'll go and get the vegan thing or the, the healthy thing. So that, remo- that removes a big, big obstacle. How, how do you feel about the fact that they'd be placing say vegan chicken next to actual chicken like that's that's kind of putting a new obstacle up isn't it it is for vegans but is it for non-vegans because what i think it's 
I think, for example, when you go to Tesco, you can see that the aisle is more or less next to the meat aisle or even sometimes sharing it, but it has a dedicated area. It, it, we need to try it, right? I mean, I would would I like it? No. I want to have my own section. I don't want to see meat, dead bodies and carcasses there. However, if if you eat meat and you find the healthy choice next to what you usually buy, maybe you'll go for it. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I will say as well, it's not just about sort of feeling squeamish or not wanting to be reminded of dead animals. Because I, I personally, I, I'm not bothered that much by that. I know that might make me seem like a bit ice cold and like I have no feelings. But it's actually the practicality part of it. And if you've got a specific vegan section, you know where to go for your fake meat. But actually, I don't want to rummage through the meat beef burgers to see if there's a vegan one there and then find that there's not. Um, so it's it's a practicality issue too. It is. It is. But just for us vegans, probably for non-vegans, that's the best way to transition. Yeah. And that's actually going to be what makes the, the biggest difference, isn't it? I think numbers would point to the fact that even if you alienate every vegan customer that you've got for your vegan sausage rolls, there's actually more non-vegans buying them already. Already, yeah. let alone if you put them in in a different section. But obviously, the the main headline here is about the price being matched, and that's that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, whether they're subsidising that, whether it's a temporary thing, is it coming out of their marketing budget? Who knows? But it's a it's a great move, isn't it? Yeah. Should we tell Starbucks about it? <laughs> Indeed. Throwback to last week. Let's let James Cromwell know. Um, just to finish off, uh, Little have announced that by 2030, uh, their German stores aim to increase the proportion of plant-based protein sources by 20% uh, and aim to increase the proportion of alternative dairy products by 10% in their German stores, which in a sense are quite conservative numbers, but they're, they're certainly pointing to uh, wanting to improve in that regard. So. Um, yeah, thumbs up to them, I guess. Yeah, it seems like a good move. And we've started with a very good story. So what about if we move to the next one? Next ones are a study and a survey. Let's go with the survey from veganuary.com. Six-month survey released. Yeah, so this is a survey that was sent out to all 469,000 people who did Veganuary this year. But six months on. Veganuary have done for the last several years they've done like an exit poll immediately after veganuary but obviously that's quite short term whereas this survey studies things a bit more in a long-term way because veganuary happened over six months ago over nine months indeed so one and a half percent of people responded which is probably quite typical for an email response that's about seven thousand people have given their thoughts and opinions on this so in terms of the biggest impact that veganuary had for people what do you think it was, Rich? Well, I'm a, I've got sad news. The Ooh. biggest impact was 68% of people felt more inspired in the kitchen. It's, I mean, it's great. It's good to feel inspired in the kitchen. However, we probably would have wanted making more compassionate food choices to be the biggest impact, but only 53% of people thought that was the case. A little disappointing, would you say? Yes, but there's one thing I don't understand. So, so they could mark more than one because I see that the numbers do not add up. Correct. That is some excellent mathematical detective it's skills strange. there. Yeah, it's strange that people feel more inspired in the kitchen. No. I, I don't know, Rich. I think we're both just detached, uh, hardcore ethical vegans who um, just don't feel inspired by anything anymore. And it's just that's who we are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, moving on. 
good news, I would suggest, is that 80% of people who responded have reduced animal products by over a half since doing Veganuary, um, including 28% of the respondents who've stayed completely vegan, which... I think that's it's good truly news. amazing. That's truly yeah. amazing. That's very. Yeah. That's a great job by Veganuary, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. Everyone who's kind of staying on the bandwagon is is a victory, really, isn't it? Even yeah. if you choose to focus on those who haven't. In terms of what helped people stay vegan, those who have stayed vegan cited learning more about veganism being the biggest thing that helped them. So I guess facts about why you might be vegan. Plus the fact that being vegan was easier than they expected. 30% of people said being vegan was easier than they expected. And that was a big help, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had heard this from a lot of people that once they try it, it's easier than what they previously thought it would be. Yeah, it, it is. And in a sense, that's a little self-selecting in that perhaps people who would find it really difficult, maybe they wouldn't even try it. Um, yeah, but- exactly. But, but who knows? Anyway, 89% reported their health either improving or maintaining. So that's that's pretty decent, I think. The, what, one that really caught my eye here was that over half of people responding have been more active in promoting veganism since doing Veganuary, um, including 53% who say that they've influenced at least one person to try veganism, which is fantastic. I wouldn't expect that so soon. No, I think that truly amazing because it shows like how many people did it this year 700,000 uh no uh, not quite that many 469,000 469,000 yeah take a bit more than half that have been promoting veganism that's a lot of people talking about it so the chances of making a change are very high yeah yeah absolutely and promoting veganism, not just talking about it, saying, oh, this is rubbish. They're yeah, exactly. Promoting, which is great. Even those who aren't vegan anymore, 96% of them said that they will try a vegan diet again, which in a sense is the most heartening of, of all of these things. Because even if you look at the numbers and think, oh, gosh, like all these people tried it and haven't stuck with it, 96% so, say that they'll give it another go, which I, I think is really good. The, the final bit that, oh, gosh... I'm going to get I'm going to put my cross hat on for this. Why people said they stopped being vegan. They were only allowed to choose one reason. They were given a list. Top of the list was 21% of people said that they found it difficult when eating out at restaurants. Now, I've got to say as someone who's been vegan for, <laughs> for nearly 13 years, eating out at restaurants in 2023 as a vegan is a walk in the park in my opinion. However, I appreciate that for a lot of people, it would still be quite difficult. Am I just being a grumpy old man, Richard? Um, no, I can't say yes, can I? No. <laughs> um, I think I, I was really surprised with this because 21%, one out of five, think that it's very difficult to eat out at restaurants. I'm presuming that this is because maybe they have a social gathering, they go with their family, their friends. I find it really difficult to believe, especially nowadays where most places, I'd say probably... 80% of places have vegan options. Yeah, it's it's interesting though. It, it shows in a sense how far we need to go because actually uh, I guess people who are saying they're finding it difficult are saying so because they've not got loads and loads of options. So maybe they, they've got a third of the normal menu size that they normally would. And that's, that's seen as a negative thing. Whereas when we've been vegan in the days where there's basically nothing to eat, just having some options seems like this amazing thing. But if you've not experienced life like that, you're not going to see that as a positive. You're not going to be grateful for that. You're going to see what's missing, aren't you? 
Yeah. What are the others? Um, so missing non-vegan foods was also a big factor that was a big factor that that people said that they they couldn't carry on being vegan for which i think is understandable uh pressure from friends and family 12 percent difficulty finding vegan options in shops 10 percent and in a sense a quite a reassuring thing was that right at the bottom of the list six percent of people said the biggest thing that was difficult was feeling isolated now obviously i'm not pleased that that six percent of people felt isolated but if that was the number one that would be that would be quite uh, a worrying thing really um or eight percent said they didn't have enough practical support so in a sense it kind of feels like people doing veganuary do at least feel like they're part of a community. They've got lots of practical resources and things like that. So in a sense, that was quite reassuring. I don't know if you get the same feeling, Rich. Yeah, it's quite reassuring. But I think this is very interesting from a moving forward perspective. What do we need more in society to help people go vegan? Um, I would take it that way, you know, impact on health. Well, I'm not so sure about that one because it should have a positive impact anyway. Pressure from friends and family. Yes, I understand that one. Missing non-vegan foods. I, I thought that would be number one, to be honest. But yeah, yeah. well, it's I mean, it's number two. So it's it's up there. But like the, the top two difficulty when eating out at restaurants and missing non-vegan foods that accounts for 41 percent of people's number one reason for not staying yeah. vegan. It just suggests like as much as I hate to say it, that actually a spread of vegan capitalism and just like getting more and more options out there. That seems to be the thing, doesn't it? Yeah, I think the lesson here, these are not things to discuss in in terms of is this right or wrong, but it's for learning how to move forward, how to create a better environment for vegans. Maybe we just need to start putting out vegan options, you know, everywhere. Yeah, well, it, it... It, like you say, it's just really important to listen to, isn't it? Because my my first response in seeing somebody saying, oh, yeah, I stopped being vegan because you can't get anything to eat in a restaurant. I was going, what? What are you talking about? But actually, you need to listen to that. It doesn't matter how incredulous you feel and how angry you feel at that. I didn't feel angry. That's an exaggeration. But we need to listen to it and, and we need to do yeah. what we can. But um, certainly interesting. And it makes you it makes you it shows you that people don't change as you think they'll change or as you want them to change, they'll change because there's something inside them that see a benefit on making a change. And this shows the the, the road ahead. Anyway, let's go for the study now from Nature Communication Journal, the global and regional air quality impacts of dietary change. So basically, to summarise the study, the authors have estimated reductions in premature mortality of up to 236,000, so a 3-6% reduction across the world if more plant-based eating was going on, I guess because of the emissions associated with animal agriculture. That's leading to cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. And so the less that we have that... The, the, the fewer deaths according to those things. I mean, that's something I'd never considered, Rich, but it's, it's interesting to see a study done on it. No, you don't usually think about it, but it does make sense once you read the, the study. I mean, the amount of methane and ammonia that animal agriculture em- emits to the atmosphere shows you the amount of pollution that we all have. And yeah, all, all the um, excrements and fertilizers used, it's, it's insane. Yeah, and I, I think that when people are talking about climate change, I think particularly in Western Europe, we don't really think of the impacts uh, affecting us 
Um, well, of course they will and they are, um, but people think of it as a problem that's affecting people elsewhere. But this study is pointed to the fact that between 20 and 40,000 deaths in Europe each year could be prevented by switching to more plant-based foods just be- just due to cardiovascular and respiratory diseases caused by the effects of animal agriculture. And that's, I mean, that's a number that you can share with people and say, look, this is affecting us now. Oh, absolutely. And study after study after study, things are becoming clearer and clearer. Yeah, so long as we keep sharing it and keep talking about it, eh? Absolutely. Okay, I don't know exactly what category you'd put this story in, but it certainly seems to represent an improvement for animal outcomes. From Vegan Food and Living, RSPCA members vote for charity to go 100% plant-based. So, yeah, the RSPCA has announced that its members have voted in favour for all food and drink at future events and meetings being vegan. Now, that sounds like great news and it is a great first step. However, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen because that's just members voting for it. So it now needs to propose this new policy to its board. Interestingly, reading up on this story, this move seems to have followed calls from Animal Rising, who have been campaigning RSPCA to transition to a plant-based food system and a programme of, of rewilding. It seems like that's been the impetus of it. Rich, the, the RSPCA don't have the best reputation amongst a lot of vegans that, that I've spoken to, certainly over the last few years. Do you think this is an opportunity to, to celebrate progress that they're making? Or is it kind of down to us um, as ethical vegans to be pointing to, to further areas that they need to improve in? Okay, I think whenever a charity or an organisation goes 100% plant-based in their events. Yeah, we need to celebrate that. However, the RSPCA mission is to prevent cruelty to animals, but just certain animals. So there's a bit of a, you know, kind of cognitive dissonance there where you say, yeah, no, you can't be cruel to dogs and cats and horses, but no matter other animals, you know, it doesn't matter with other animals. So no. It's difficult to digest, right? It is. And I I think there's a similar thing that that, that vegans might have with the RSPCA that that vegans often have with vegetarians in that it seems like they're a group of people who care about animals and are so close to making such a positive difference, but then seem to sort of swerve at the last minute and ignore, ignore a lot of things that are going on. But then none of us are perfect and and all of us as vegans can can do a lot more, can't we, and improve our advocacy better and and what have you. But I I was wondering, do you think the RSPCA need to just change their name? Because I think it's the most obvious way that you can point out, well, you're you're, you're not preventing cruelty to animals because you're still sanctioning that slaughterhouse. You're saying that slaughterhouse is doing so in a humane way. But if they didn't have that name, then, you know, if they were just called, I don't know, the prevention of certain animals. Yeah, or just that, you know, improving humane treatment of animals gradually organisation. I don't know whether there would be such disdain towards them amongst the vegan community. I think we could go down, you know, (laughs) here. I don't know if that's a good route, but uh, yeah, um, it's difficult to understand why they're taking this decision so late. You know, it's good that they're taking it. It needs to be approved by the board, I know, Mm. but at least they're taking this this action let's hope one step at a time even if it's you know slow but uh, at the end they will decide to go vegan themselves okay what about if we move on to fashion now 
Oh, yeah, let's do it. Love a bit of fashion news. Yeah. From fashionnetwork.com, Vegan Fashion Week celebrates fifth edition. Yeah, so like last year, Vegan Fashion Week took place at the California Market Center in downtown LA. And this time around, as you say, Rich, they celebrated the fifth anniversary of the event founded by Emmanuel Rienda. The event started with a political and emotional speech by actress Richa Morjani, who is deeply involved in ethical and vegan fashion. Um, lots of different events. I'll try and summarize them for you now. It's quite interesting to hear these things going on, especially if, like me, you're not really au fait with what's going on in the fashion world. So the events featured a collection of elegant Western boots made from apple fibre, vintage and upcycled pieces, a collection of apple canvas bags and a whole lot more. The week ended with the Emmy nominated Michelle Bella Bowman's spoken words. Very moving here. Vegan Fashion Week goes beyond just a trend. It's a beacon of transformation guiding us towards a fashion future where humanity and animals coexist in compassion and harmony. It's an exciting and meaningful journey reflecting the emphasis we put on our choices and their impact. Representing my generation, I see the power and necessity of this movement. After all, our future is crafted from our actions today. Our choices, the designs we wear, the fashion culture we cultivate all resonate loudly about the world we desire. Pretty awesome, really, isn't it? It sounds like a great thing they've got going on there. It is a great thing they, they have going on. And I don't know, it's it's nice to see all these, because we used to sing in Paris and New York, all these, you know, high-profile designers, clothes designers and all this. So seeing it from a vegan point of view, it's really nice. Yeah, it is. I wonder, do, do you think this vegan fashion week is a little bit like vegan festivals used to be i think it's fair to say that vegan festivals aren't perhaps quite as widespread or as big as they they used to be certainly don't seem to be but perhaps that's happening as vegan food and and things like that are becoming more mainstream it's just being kind of integrated into mainstream food festivals and things like that whereas perhaps at the moment vegan fashion it needs to have its own festival to draw attention to it. But we would hope that quite soon it becomes so well integrated into the mainstream that it kind of doesn't need its own thing. Or does it help highlight it? What do you think? Well, I think it will be the first part or the first industry that will go 100% vegan. That's mm -hmm. my feel about it. So it will make sense that, yeah, maybe it will grow, but after other events or other fashion weeks or fashion events will keep adopting vegan materials and therefore probably we won't even notice it will be the same i don't know the names you know of all these <laughs> designers and all this but probably they'll just say yeah this is a new material people will be happy with it no one will know it's vegan except vegans ourselves and probably will be cheaper to produce so i think it's a normal move and it'll just be fashion week accidentally well purposely vegan yeah, I mean, it's good to just get the word out there, isn't it? So I'm certainly not criticising them. Uh, just a final question on this. There, there are a lot of alternative fibres and fabrics mentioned. I, I tended to focus on those when I was summarising things. There were still things made of polyester and cotton and stuff like that, but it sounds less exciting. Do you think having things like apple fibre bags, and we've discussed cabbage leather uh, last week and stuff like that, do you think that makes us look innovative um, and, and forward-looking? or a bit weird? 
if I'm honest, a bit weird. You know, you say cotton, you say other materials, and people will be like, oh, wow, this is amazing, blah, blah, blah. You talk about pineapple. I don't know if mushrooms would fall in that category, but certainly apple, cabbage. It's like, what are you wearing? But hey, if it works, happy days. Yeah, I think it's a, a bit of both. I, I have a similar thing with um, the running shoes I wear, are those ones where you can see everyone, you can see the person's toes. And it's one of those where people will often ask me about it and I'll explain like why it's designed that way and the benefits and people seem interested. But I know for certain that behind my back, people are like, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Why is he wearing those weird shoes? Weird shoe man, toe shoe man. So I, I don't know. It's a bit <laughs> of both, isn't it? But we can't afraid we can't be afraid of being different, can we? Especially if it's the future. So uh, onwards exactly. and upwards. And uh, should, we, should we move on to the next story with that as well? Yeah, let's move forward to a new set of stories relating to animal rights. First, from Farming UK, campaigners win right to appeal against broiler chicken high court decision. Yeah, this is a really good bit of news. Animal welfare campaigners have won the right to appeal against a high court decision made back in May, which deemed that the government acted lawfully in allowing the use of fast-growing broiler chickens. Now, these broiler chickens, if you're not aware of them before, they're animals who reach their slaughter weight of two and a half kilograms in 34 to 36 days so they live just over a month they grow incredibly quickly and then they're slaughtered incredibly sad and and difficult situation back in may this year the humane league put a legal challenge to the high court saying that these these chickens should not be used and they, they, they shouldn't be bred in this way. Um, Judge Sir Ross Cranston ruled that DEFRA's policies, which allow the rearing of such chickens, were lawful. There was nothing wrong with them as far as that judge. However, fast forward to this week, Lord Justice William Davis has now ruled that there is a legitimate argument to the contrary of this decision, which needs to be considered by the court. So, Good news that the Humane League UK have got a chance to argue their case in court. They say that the use of these chickens, which grow unnaturally large, unnaturally fast, breaches animal welfare regulations. Uh, They say that rapid growth rates can contribute to health problems such as heart failure, sudden death syndrome. um, And research has shown that around 30% of them are likely to experience pain from leg and foot issues directly because of how quickly they grow. Rich, in a sense, though though this is clearly good news, there's a chance for this to be um, overturned, I guess. Because it's so widespread, I find it quite difficult to imagine that they will actually win the case. Yes, and even if they win the case, which I doubt it, it's difficult to imagine, the implementation of it would be certainly difficult. There's too much pressure and lobbying and too much profit to be made. So I, it's pretty unlikely this will happen. Yeah, I mean, Sean Gifford, the managing director of the Humane League UK, would disagree with us. Um, he said that the court only grants an appeal if there's a very real prospect of success. I guess they don't want to waste court time. Um, and so they are thrilled that their legal challenge will have this day finally in court. So they're, they're more confident, I guess. I think either way, my feeling is that it's it's worth spreading this news at this stage before a verdict has been reached. Because actually, the fact that a judge is saying, no, this needs to be debated in court, it shows that there's validity to the argument. And that kind of shows that it's, it's a reasonable argument to make. And so even just spreading that gets a 
across the message to people, doesn't it? It does. And it raises awareness of what really goes on in the poultry sector. Because the first time I read about broilers, I I could not believe how fast they grow. They're all engineered, of course, Mm. uh, genetically, how fast and the pain they suffer just because of abnormal growth. So, yeah, at least hopefully this will raise awareness for people to know what's going on. Yeah, at the very least. And obviously the fact they've got a day in court gives them a chance of, of winning and maybe overturning it. So fingers crossed there and we will report that as soon as the as soon as the court case has been argued. Exactly. Now, from the Telegraph, Grand National to undergo major changes amid animal right pressure. Yeah, so Aintree, the host of the UK's biggest horse race of the year, the Grand National, insists that these changes that they are making are not the result of this year's animal rising protests at the event. However, the race is to undergo a series of radical safety-related changes in time for next year's race. Now, this is something that they do every year. They review things. But this year, a lot of changes. So they are as follows. The field of 40 horses is being reduced to a maximum of 34 horses. They're moving the first fence back towards the start by 60 yards uh, to reduce the arrival speed of the horses when they get there. They're implementing a standing start. The start time is returning to the mid-afternoon rather than late in the afternoon to, to help the ground management, which I've I've looked at and it, it it basically means the ground is going to be safer for them to run on. They're trimming the 11th fence by two inches to lower the risk of falling. They're removing handlers from the parade and they are ramping up pre-race veterinary and eligibility checks. So first things first, Rich, do you think it was anything to do with Animal Rising or is this just this stuff that they were going to do anyway because they care about animals so much? No, no, this is for sure because of Animal Rising. They, yeah. I don't think they would have made any change if it wasn't for them. So big, big credit to them. They're doing a great job. It was it was certainly a really controversial race this year, wasn't it? I, th- I think, I mean, obviously horses are, are harmed in, in horse racing, whether or not there are deaths at the Grand National or not. But I think the fact that there were deaths and there were injuries and there were the protests, it just made it look like a less credible event, didn't it? So I think they had to do something. They had to do something, but because of Animal Rising and all this, I guess probably they've made more changes. First of all, these changes are not enough. Are not enough. Yeah. Um, animals, or horses in this case, will still suffer. And it's just, you know, sort of the welfare part of it, where they say, yeah, yeah, maybe we're not doing things well enough. Let's make this change and it will be fine. Now, sorry, I don't think it's fine because we're still, you know, abusing animals in this case by obliging them to to race in certain conditions where they can get harmed and they can get broken legs or they can die. So I think the only way moving forward is just to stop it. Yeah, I, I, I think in sort of pragmatic terms, there's going to need to be lots more protests and, and, and things like that before it's completely outlawed but actually I, I think we can see the start of a slippery slope for the industry hopefully and with with people like Animal Rising and, and others objecting to these things on a regular basis it, it starts to de- discredit things doesn't it and 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 hopefully it can just erode any support that is left for it but fingers crossed obviously I'm not being particularly balanced there when I'm saying that but it, it seems like such an unnecessary outdated way that animals are being used and hurt. 
I want it to well, stop. <laughs> <laughs> there's more news about uh, relating to horses. Yeah, let's from Gothamist.com. Carriage horse accident in Midtown. Yeah, so more more horsey stories, and again, an accident, unfortunately. So there's been a lot of focus on the use of carriage horses in New York City over the last year, and there's been a further accident in the last week, which has restarted the debate as to whether they should be used uh, in the tourism industry in New York City at all. So this horse broke loose from his handlers, ran down the street, and crashed into a parked car. Dino, who is a bay Dutch harness horse, was being unhitched from his rig at the stables on West 38th Street when something spooked him. He was still partially hooked to the carriage that he'd been pulling when he ran down the street and he only stopped when the carriage itself hit a parked car and flipped over. He stayed on his feet. Um, um, he was unhitched, taken back to the stables, apparently unharmed. Now, whilst the horse owners played down the incident, NYC LASS an influential animal rights group in the city pointed to the incident as another example of alleged abuse in its ongoing quest to end the city's practice of horse-drawn carriage rides. In a statement, the group's executive director, Adita Bernkrant, urged the city council to stop that madness that puts New Yorkers, tourists and the horses and carriage drivers at risk every day. Um, Rich, it's a single-issue campaign. So I get that in a sense that's not ideal, but it does demonstrate that there's a lot of people, a lot of people who are not vegan or, or associated with animal rights in any other way, don't like seeing animals in distress. No, absolutely. Yeah, you know I'm not a big believer in single-issue campaigns because I think the main issue is that animals are seen as property. And in this case, it, it's a business that uses a horse to make money, so they're a property. Having said that, I guess we need to change at some point and people people in general, but it doesn't matter if you're vegan or not. People do not like animals to suffer. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Even if you're eating chicken or lamb, people don't like to see animals suffer. And obviously when they're in factory farms, we can't see it. In mm. this case, it's very clear. And that's why this will probably go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Because I guess if you if you're living in a, a really built up city with millions and millions of people, there aren't that many opportunities to see animals being exploited other than the ones on your plate. But that's that's so normalized now. People aren't going to question it, are they? But actually seeing a, a horse in distress in, in, in the middle of the city, that's that's quite a, a tangible, palpable way of seeing that, that animals are perhaps being used. Yeah, it's all hidden from us, right? I mean, you don't see ads on television saying, do you want to come and see our slaughterhouse facilities? They're state-of-the-art. No. So, yeah, I'd give it, I don't know, probably one year or something like it, and we'll do see you reckon? The... Yeah, why not? I mean, this is a normal evolution. It, in Spain, for example, there's also been many people now uh, asking to ban carriages with horses because just mm. the, the heat. I mean, the heat yes. in southern Spain in August is just scary at the moment. So an animal having to work eight, ten hours a day in, in middle, you know, of the city, no shade. It's just too much. So people are starting to be aware that this this needs to end. Yeah, and I, I certainly noticed. I mean, you interesting. You say you give it a year before it's outlawed. I pretty sure a New York City mayoral candidate included that as part of their campaign 
so it's it's certainly a hot topic whether or not it happens soon or in a few years time seems like uh, seems like the end is coming for that hopefully fingers crossed fingers crossed okay after last week's news about amazon river dolphins we have a more positive story from latin america from the animal reader sea shepherd confident on porpoise recovery Yeah, so the conservation group Sea Shepherd has this week expressed optimism about the vaquita porpoises' recovery after it reached a new agreement with the Mexican government to boost the endangered animals' protection. So Sea Shepherd and the Mexican Navy have been working together to protect the animals in the Sea of Cortez for many years. Uh, the critically endangered vaquita porpoise has been severely threatened by illegal gillnet fishing for the fish Totoba, with vaquita porpoises often becoming entangled in the fishing nets. But this week, Mexican authorities and Sea Shepherd have announced that they will expand their efforts along the Mexican Pacific coast by expanding the protected zone by more than 60% within the so-called zero-tolerance area where fishing is forbidden. Sea Shepherd's latest surveillance mission spotted around a dozen healthy-looking vaquitas recently, including calves. So they're breeding. So that's positive. A good news story, Richard. I know, good story, good news story. It's good to see that they're recovering. Again, it's it's. I feel a bit sad because we celebrate things for endangered endangered species, but we forget about all the ones that are dying. Don't get me wrong, I'm really thrilled to know that probably they're recovering their numbers now, but I don't know, what's your take on it? Well, I think in a sense there's a similarity with our previous story in that somebody might feel sympathy for a carriage horse that's distressed but then go home and eat a beef burger actually feeling compassion for an endangered porpoise off the coast of latin america maybe that's just a first step towards feeling compassion for another sentient being and yes it might not stop you continuing to use and unwittingly abuse animals in your day-to-day -day life but if it starts to plant a seed of compassion in you then actually maybe there's there's hope that a bit further down the line hopefully sooner rather than later more actions can follow that that are, are translated into making positive outcomes for animals or for for more animals not just the cute endangered ones yeah and as we were saying before with the veganuary story we really don't know what triggers people to change or what's the spark that will make them be aware of what's going on and say you know what i i can't eat that um that lamb because it it reminds me of my dog uh, i can't do it you never know what the trigger so yeah good story yeah yeah okay so one to go now our final story this week from plant-based news earthling ed announces release of second book yeah now before anyone gets too excited this is the announcement of a book that will be released on the 28th of december right at the end of the year this is from vegan activist ed winters commonly known as earthling ed he's this week announced that his new book which is called how to argue with a meat eater and win every time it will be released later this year ed said on instagram that he's so happy to be releasing his second book time after time the vegans i meet tell me they struggle to effectively talk about veganism with the people in their life or that they feel overwhelmed by all the arguments and overcome with the emotion that arises when discussing such an important topic he went on to say if this is something you've ever experienced then how to argue with a meat eater is for you 
the book will see him break down anti-vegan claims made from the likes of Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, as well as popular arguments about regenerative agriculture and anti-nutrients in plants. Rich, I don't know about you, I'll certainly be getting a copy and we'll review it in an episode when it comes out. Really excited to see this book. Yeah, and I think it's uh, we can already pre-order it now. So mm. yeah, it sounds like good. you might have already done so, Richard. I could, I could. I'll let you know next week. Just a few <laughs> days after my birthday. Just saying. Um, Ooh. On, <laughs> on a serious note, I don't know whether it was Edwin's himself or the publishers Penguin who chose the title of the book. I'm not so sure. I, I get, I get what the content of the book's going to be. It's going to be helping people have discussions about veganism. But I don't know about how to argue with a meat eater and win every time. I don't know if that's a message I'm. I want to be behind, but I can I can see why it would sell more books and get people talking about it. Yeah, and you know what? If if you were eating meat, would you be like interested in knowing what what does that mean? Maybe I should buy that book. What, what does it mean? Argue with me? I don't know. Yeah, you, well, talk about getting people's non-vegans will buy this book. Well, I, I'm I'm not even thinking about that. I'm just thinking if if I eat meat and I walk into a bookshop. And I see that there's a book called that, that I'm already defensive before I've even heard anybody speak to me about veganism at all. I'm already on the defensive, which is not a particularly uh, healthy way for building bridges and, and understanding between people, is it? But I guess I guess Penguin just want to get lots of PR about it. It'll get them on the Pierce Morgan show, won't it? It'll, it'll get lots of free publicity for them. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, but we'll definitely book in first first week of January. We'll uh, make sure we've read the book and we'll do a little review episode on it or something like that. Well, a question to the Enough of the Falafel community out there listening. What are your thoughts on this week's news? Anything we've missed or got completely wrong? Let us know your opinions, especially on a personal note, on the title of the Earthling Ed's book. He always seems so laid back. Have Penguin Books paid him off to sound more controversial? Let us know. Indeed, we'd love to hear from you. And just a reminder, if you spot news or articles that you think would catch our interest, get in touch with us by email at enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com. We're also at Enough of the Falafel on Facebook, Instagram or TikTok, where you can get a little sneak preview on the news we're covering in each episode. We'd love it if you gave us a follow. This show is kindly sponsored by our friends at Fire and Flow Coffee Roasters. I've bought lots of stuff from them over the years and you can do too, whether or not you live in the Cotswolds, because they are online, fireandflowcoffee.co.uk. They're a specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswolds and they've got a fully vegan coffee shop on site. Fire and Flow is a vegan founded company run by three friends, Shah, Callum and Phil. They specialise in roasting and supplying wholesale coffee beans to coffee shops, restaurants, hotels and offices. They love working with other businesses to help them get the most out of their coffee offering. They offer free barista training and full technical support for anyone that is taking them on as a wholesale supplier. They're passionate about working with skilled and ethical minded farmers too, which is absolutely fantastic. They make sure that they're getting the highest quality beans and then they roast them to perfection in small batches 
at their roastery in Sirencester, which, if you're a bit of a coffee nerd, you can visit. It's really interesting. Smells fantastic. You can book into it online via the Fire and Flow Coffee website. So fireandflowcoffee.co.uk. As well as that, they offer barista courses. And while you're there, check out the fully vegan coffee shop. They sell vegan pastries, flat whites, the lot, whatever you fancy. It's absolutely brilliant. The coffee shop's open seven days a week between nine and three o'clock. And just while you're planning your visit to Sirencester, you can give them a follow on Insta in the meantime to get the latest. They are at Fire and Flow Coffee. Brilliant to see a completely vegan company out there doing great stuff. Yeah, absolutely. When it's when it's 100% vegan, ran by vegans, easy to access, great quality. It's just win, 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 win. No downside, is there? Yes, but it's not always that simple. We had an email from a listener, Andy, that got us thinking, and it's going to form the starting point of our discussion this week. Do you want to read the email out, Anthony? Yeah, yeah, go for it. So this is an email from Andy, who's been listening since episode one. Woo, good work, Andy. I always have the dilemma in relation to shopping and eating in shops, cafes, etc. that aren't 100% vegan. I'm on the road quite a bit with work. And while I have found places on Happy Cow, the majority of the time I'm picking up vegan food from motorway services. On occasions, I found the options limited to just Greg's. On that subject, bizarrely, one of the best for vegan options is Gloucester Services, but that also has a farm shop. The guilt around that is always at the front of my mind. We have a great vegan supermarket called Unicorn in Chalton, Manchester, but it's a 30-minute drive away if lucky with traffic, and it does work out pretty expensive. We find instead we use local chain supermarkets and only call it Unicorn if we're in the area. Thanks for reading and this email, Anthony. Yeah, so the question we wanted to start our our discussion with is, should vegans always buy from 100% vegan companies? Yeah. Now, before we get into the discussion, we both kind of want to acknowledge that in a sense, there's no should about it, because as vegans, we should always try our best. But actually, the, 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 the sort of rules, quote unquote, are basically just going to be to do your best to be compassionate wherever it's practical and and possible to do so. And there are going to be situations where most of us or or probably all of us can't stick to purely 100% vegan companies the whole time, especially if you start looking at parent companies and parent companies are parent companies. It's impossible to do pretty much 100% of the time. And there should be no shame in that. I think that's fair to say, Richard. Is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, and also if you go, you travel a lot, you go on holidays or you need to travel for work, sometimes it's so difficult to know if you're going to France, Spain, certain areas of the US, you might not be able to find 100% ethical options. So yeah, we, we wanted everyone to bear this in mind. Yeah, absolutely. But if we if we sort of break it down and see see the two sides of the argument, I guess. So we'll start off by looking at, well, why actually might it be a good idea to buy from a non-vegan company obviously a, a vegan product but if we're saying like oh i'm going to get a vegan magnum or i'm going to buy a vegan burger that's made by tesco who also obviously make meat so some reasons why you might want to do that i'd say probably the one that i hear the most is that you by, by doing so you are encouraging a non-vegan company to see that there is money to be made 
in plant-based food in vegan choices that's would you say rich that's the, the most commonly used argument for why it's okay and, and actually a good idea to buy from a non-vegan company yeah absolutely because at the end of the day for them it's a profit game right so if you show them that there's real profit to be made with vegan options they'll probably start putting more and more options down out there i think greg's is a great example uh, they first launched their vegan sausage roll and they they started to put out some new products and people seem to like it so they've continued offering them and that's not only greg's it's other companies they they see that it's profitable therefore they'll put more out there i think as well actually the reach of these companies is huge and at the moment as much as it pains me to say it their reach is much 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 bigger than any vegan company i remember a couple of years ago driving into my local asda uh, in january and there was a massive poster that just said go vegan this january and that was put up by asda asda were advocating for veganism and i don't think there was any way that any vegan company in, in, in the town that I was in at the time could have paid for such a large advertisement saying go vegan but big chains can and whilst they're also promoting non-vegan things they do have the power to, to get veganism out there to a, a bigger platform if they see a financial reason to do so. Yeah and also they have the capability of scaling things up it's not the same for a startup or a local cafe to start making. I mean, for a cafe to make 20 cakes is a stretch. You know, <laughs> there's a lot going on. There's a lot, you know, you need the ovens, you need the equipment, you need the staff. It's a difficult game. While if you're a big company, uh, you already have the equipment, you already have the knowledge on how to scale and mass produce things. So you have a great advantage there. Yeah, I think it's worth saying as well, Rich, that like... <laughs> Obviously, the, the vegan society's definition of, of veganism doesn't have to apply to everyone. Like a, anyone identifying as vegan, in a sense, can can choose whatever definition they want. But if we are to refer to that as, as what veganism means, there's nothing in there that's saying you must only buy from 100% vegan companies, actually. And and it's it's about the, the product or the thing that you are or the behavior that you are doing needs to be avoiding the use of animals where possible and where practical. And actually, if I'm buying a plant-based pizza, arguably in terms of a definition of veganism, it doesn't matter where I'm getting it from, does it? In in, in those terms. No, I like what you're saying, but it makes me think, should non-vegan companies then stop stop labeling things as vegan and just call plant-based option? Because obviously they do not have the, the vegan ethics required if they're not trading 100% vegan well interestingly the vegan society have an article on this where they're saying that this is why we give the vegan label to individual products but not to companies because actually it's very difficult for them to police uh, quote-unquote whole companies but they can say the ingredients in this product are completely plant-based and there's nothing intrinsic about the production methods that use animals too. So I I don't know. I I think generally speaking, it's it's a bit of a language semantics thing here. But very often people will will say this is suitable for vegans. And and personally, I don't know about you, Rich. This is maybe a separate conversation. But I don't necessarily like food being called vegan. Food is plant based. Really? Yeah, food is plant. 
like so oh gosh right this is a whole separate conversation i'm gonna i'm gonna try and condense this to 30 seconds okay right <laughs> let's say i really don't like chocolate okay if okay. if on the packet it says suitable for vegans that's wrong it's not suitable for me i don't like it so it, you can't say it's suitable for me but what you can do is you can say that that food is plant-based is completely from plants or you could say it contains no animal ingredients now both of those things tell me that from an ingredients point of view and from an ethical point of view i am happy to eat it but actually calling it vegan i i don't think that actually makes sense i'm vegan i live my life in a vegan way but like that chocolate bar doesn't live its life in a vegan way that that, that chocolate bar is plant-based does that make any sense i know that's it, a bit of a, a random one yeah. but <laughs> I, I can see ourselves going in a huge tangent there, so I'll stop it here. I'll yeah. just say that, yes, I understand your point of view, yeah. because I don't like to see things labelled as vegan by non-vegan companies, because it makes me think, well, the company's not vegan. Yeah, right? yeah. how do you know? But what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> when I see suitable for vegans, it makes me laugh, because it, it seems to me like they're saying, yeah, go on, you can have a bit of it. <laughs> so that's my take on it. So I'm like, well, what's suitable for me too? Oh, thank you. We can all eat it now. Yeah, yeah. But to answer your question, I I, I mean, having a vegan label on things, I, I, I think is... Is, is fine, isn't it? But the, I think the point is, by the definition of veganism from the vegan society, that there's nothing that forbids. I mean, it's, you know, we're not a dogmatic religion here, but like there's nothing f forbidden about eating a vegan pizza made by Pizza Hut within the definition of veganism, is there? No. And from a practical point of view, it's very convenient to have a label where you just can buy the product, be nearly guaranteed or reassured that what you're buying is vegan or plant-based, let's say. So it, it's good from a practical point of view. By the way, another thing to bear in mind is if we all stopped buying from non-vegan companies or, or many of us didn't buy from non-vegan companies, probably the, the options available and the ranges available would decline. So in a way, you know, by maybe in a way, not sticking 100% to our ethics or to our desires, but buying from them ensures that there's a bigger opportunity for omnivores or meat eaters to try these products because probably they wouldn't go to 100% vegan places. So mm. I guess, yeah, it's we need to, in a way, to buy products from them. Yeah, I, I think there's a risk that vegan brands and vegan brands are just seen as a thing that are providing food for vegans but vegans don't eat from non-vegan brands and non-vegans don't eat from vegan brands like it kind of feels like this weird separation almost like a sort of dietary special specialty thing um and it, it possibly feels like it's stopping the flow of it perhaps i don't know if that's quite the point you were making rich but i, I it, yeah, it does need it does need to keep going, doesn't it? Like the... I mean, it, it's a tough one because personally, me as an individual, I try to stick to buying from 100% vegan places. Yeah. But I understand the need to keep buying from non-vegan places. Well, as as well, like if it was a if if you got struck by lightning, if you bought from a non-vegan brand. 
that would that would be very difficult like you are giving yourself flexibility aren't there though you're saying you try to buy from 100% vegan companies you do allow yourself the flexibility of not doing so from time to time and i think that's important to bear in mind for for vegans as a whole isn't it like if if we said no you must only buy from 100% vegan companies all the time that would be almost unachievable for everyone the thing is that that's a personal decision and a personal choice and depends from the circumstances you have. I mean, it's not the same if you live in London uh, next to a vegan convenience store and a vegan restaurant and you have all the money needed. Yeah, that's perfect. But if you live in other areas, well, access to 100% vegan companies is not that easy. Mm. And actually, we, we, we like to... We like to have variety and diversity in our lives, don't we? And even if you live next door to the most amazing vegan restaurant and vegan supermarket that there's ever been, actually, after six months, you might want to go somewhere else just for a change. You know. Uh, (laughs) Okay, I might disagree in that. I might disagree in that. Yeah, uh, fine. I think, okay, let's just say a lot of people would. I think a lot of human beings might get sick of just going to the same place week after week after week after week. Yes, that... Yeah, better. <laughs> yeah, creatures of habit like you and I might might be fine for the rest of our lives. But uh, um, anyway, th- there's one other point I wanted to make, sort of in favour of buying from non-vegan companies, and then I'm happy to move on. Um, if you are rich, and it was just yeah. to, to kind of question this as a as a as a form of boycott. So I've often heard veganism described as a financial boycott. So you're financially boycotting industries that profit from making animals, and the hope is that if enough of us join that boycott, then those industries start to reduce those behaviours, or they even become eliminated. My question is: if we boycott non-vegan companies, is it going to make any difference? And my thought would would be not, actually, simply because if you reverse the argument and if you look at vegan brands, most vegan brands are patronised primarily by non-vegans. So if you take a vegan company, most of their income comes from non-vegans buying the product. And and I, I think as sad as that is, it does show that in terms of spending power, vegans don't have that much. So if we all just said tomorrow, none of us are buying the vegan magnum for example magnum would not be affected they'd stop their vegan one potentially although to be fair like enough non-vegans might still buy it that they keep the plant-based one but i don't think it would actually make much of a dent in the short term so i'd i'd question it in terms of a financial boycott especially when bearing in mind how inconvenient it might be to live your life that way 100 percent of the time but I, I can see you frowning, Richard. <laughs> I, I think we're assuming that us vegans make up for the majority of the sales of vegan brands or vegan products from non-vegan companies. Or, no, I'm, no, I'm saying quite the opposite. I'm saying okay. that we w- that we don't make up the majority, even if it is a vegan product. Far, far more non-vegans yeah. will buy the product. Got you. Yeah, no, well, I don't think it would make a... A huge difference. I mean, <laughs> option is your or, or, or chances are that they'll stop just doing that product. They'll say, okay, there's not enough demand. I mean, there's also an element sometimes that when you try a non-vegan a vegan product from a non-vegan company, you're thinking, what's this? And you don't like it. So there's um, also that, you know, that can happen. 
yeah I, I don't want to say don't try anything if there's never any chance that it would would work i don't want to sound pessimistic but i'm just being a bit pragmatic should we should we move on to to why we perhaps should try to buy from 100 vegan companies maybe we're not saying all the time but as much as possible what benefits there can be had from that come on rich you want to get stuck into this give us give us an impassioned case for buying from 100 vegan companies where we can how much time do we have <laughs> no, first of all, I think it's very important to align your money with your values. And therefore, if if you can choose to put your money where someone with a real passion to change things, to change the world, to make a better society, I would definitely put my money there. I'm not saying that if you don't need the product, go and buy it. What I'm saying is, if you have to buy it anyway, just I would buy it from a vegan place. I'm, you know, really helping the cause. I think as well, it's it's worth mentioning that a lot of completely vegan companies or a lot of completely compassionate driven companies are small and therefore a little contribution goes a very long way. You know, every wicked kitchen burger that's bought, yeah, it makes an impact, but like wicked kitchens turnover every year is in the tens of millions Whereas a small vegan startup, if if you've got a product, if they've got a product that you need and that you'd like to get from them, that's going to make a massive proportion of their turnover and it's going to make a massive difference to somebody who's championing uh, vegan and compassionate causes. So if you can patronise them, it's going to make a huge difference. Yes, absolutely. It will also be more aligned with your values because... Inadvertently, when you're paying for a vegan product produced by a non-vegan company, actually your money can also go to fund things you don't want to fund. It could also be that, you know, there's a cheese brand that makes a vegan option, a vegan cheese. Therefore, your money, you don't know where that money goes. It's not like two separate entities. It goes to the same place. Yeah, and in terms of the brand that you're supporting, actually, the the continuation of the KFC brand is continuing to promote the idea that chickens can be objectified and that chickens are food. Even if you're buying a vegan product from KFC. And I, I think that's a, a kind of hidden impact. I certainly am not having a go at anybody who's buying from, from those brands, but even if we're buying the, the plant-based options from those brands in the short and medium term, we're still going to be promoting a brand that is synonymous with animal agriculture in a lot of cases. And that, that's quite difficult because we want to encourage them to change and we want to encourage brands to change so that they are less synonymous with animal agriculture. But in the short and medium term, it's different. I, I don't know if you have this, Rich, but for example, I would be a lot more willing to buy a vegan burger from Burger King than I would be to buy a, a plant-based option from KFC because KFC is is all about chicken. Whereas I could imagine Burger King being completely vegan. In fact, it's happened, hasn't it? There've been vegan versions of Burger King uh, takeovers for like a month, but like within the brand of Burger King, it's possible to imagine that being completely plant-based, but you couldn't have a plant-based company called Kentucky Fried Chicken. So I'm kind of less less happy to give them my money does that make any sense at all um yeah i understand your reasoning um probably i wouldn't buy from either of them but well, no, i do no, understand, I... I, no i do understand your reasoning i mean if you if you see like 
beef, whatever. It's yeah, like, yeah. well, their core, their core um, thing is to sell beef in K- KFC. That's to sell chicken. So why would you buy vegan options if you know that their core thing is to sell chicken? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, no, I, I totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, sometimes these things are, are maybe not rational. And we have to we have to question ourselves when they're not completely rational. But I, I think there is a bit of logic in that one at least. Well, for me, the number one reason I wouldn't buy from them, yeah, there's ethics obviously, and that's the core of you know my values. But the number one reason in in this case could would be just because they're cooking vegan products in the same place they're cooking animal products. So when you buy from a non-vegan brand, you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes i mean surely i think uh, there've been a lot of complaints have there in for mcdonald's for all these fast food chains where they do not have a dedicated space just for vegan products yeah there have been complaints and it, it doesn't surprise me because a vegan having a legitimate a legitimate complaint at mcdonald's they're not going to miss an opportunity are there I've got to say, it's not something that bothers me. This might be hypocritical, but so long as I can't taste it, I don't mind. Um, because to me, veganism is not an allergy. You know, it's it's an ethical choice. And I know it's being produced in a kitchen where animal products are being hell, um, held, handled. I don't like it, but I, I accept that. But I think it's a thing that affects a lot of people, isn't it? A lot of people don't don't like the thought of that. Sharing a grill, sharing a frying pan, things like that. It's a, it's a big deal for a lot of people. It it is for me. It is for me. I I even go as far as saying, okay, this is a non-vegan brand. It's a vegan option. Let's have a look at the label. Yeah, it can be marked as vegan or plant-based, but I, I, I always look behind and say, okay, why does it say that it may contain traces of milk? It may contain traces of other animal products? For mm. For me, for me, what's important is, in my case, first of all, is the is the brand vegan? Yes, no. If it's yes, does it make their products in their own facilities? Yes, no. I have all a decision, you know, mm-hmm. method to know if I'm going to buy that product uh, up in front of another product. So, for example, this morning I went to buy, went to Tesco, had a look at the burgers, and I wanted to, to try their own brand. So, yeah, had a look at it, and... Even though it says vegan, it says it can have traces of milk and it's been done in, in not dedicated facilities, but in facilities where you can produce other stuff. Now, no, if I want to be vegan, if I want to eat vegan, I want to be reassured that what I'm eating is 100% animal free. I don't want traces of anything. If, if I was a drug addict, uh, just recovered, would I say, oh, this has traces of heroin, that's fine, it's only traces, no. So I, I treat it, you know, as an allergy, because okay. I, I don't want my food to be treated as, oh yeah, he, he won't mind a bit of, um, I don't know, flesh on top of it. Uh, I, know, okay. I know food hygiene inspections are thorough, but the fact that they need to disclaim that they can be traces of, they're not saying like, don't worry, there's nothing there, it could have traces. So that makes me want to choose the brands that have their own facilities and are vegan. And I think that's absolutely fair for for yourself, isn't it? Um, And I think it's up to everybody to kind of decide where the line is for that. I mean, I I don't want to put you on the spot even more, Rich, but like if if you're going into a vegan restaurant 
you don't know what brands they're buying from in there, do you? So presumably there's a chance that even though everything they're cooking in their kitchen is plant-based, they could be using a product that has been made in a factory that also manufactures cheese, for example. So like, are you asking questions there or, sorry, I don't mean to interrogate you on the spot. I'm just, yeah, I get a lamp and I get the owner <laughs> and I sit him down and no, but Anthony, it's a numbers game. It's yeah, all yeah, about yeah. the statistics. So statistics yeah. anyway. Yeah. So yeah, of course that I'm, I'm not immune. I use five pound yeah. notes still and that I made from, they have animal products in it. Yeah, uh, as hard as it is. So yeah. no, I don't live in a cocoon, and I just choose apples that do not have any sort of wax on it or anything. I yeah. try to do the best I can, but I'm yeah. very conscious conscious of the choices I'm making. Yes, I do go to eat. I go out and eat in restaurants, and yeah, I very rarely go to a non-vegan restaurant. Very rarely, because yeah. I really want to have the peace of mind. But I won't go. I will not go to a vegan restaurant and, and start questioning, you know, where yeah. do you get those products from? But I guess we all have sort of some priorities. And for me, it's making sure whenever I can, I make the decision that statistically will give me the least option of having animal flesh in my product, in, in yeah. my food. And I think it's I think it's what's nice of having a growing and diverse movement is that we've got lots of different people who are expressing their veganism in lots of ways. And for some people, what you've said there, it won't resonate with them at all. But actually, for a lot of people, they'll hear that and go, oh, do you know what? I'd never even thought of that. Actually, let, maybe me say, let me say, let me stop you. Obviously, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying what people should do. I'm just no, no, no. letting everyone know what I do. Yeah, no, it didn't come across like that at all. But I, like I say, the fact is, the fact that you're that you're sharing that means that actually there there will be some people who think, oh, do you know what? Yeah, maybe maybe that is something I could make more of an effort with, and maybe that would make me feel better, which I I, I think is important, isn't it? I think what it highlights as well is that more and more it's becoming possible to do more and more for for the sake of the vegan movement, and actually. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, it was very difficult to even maintain a completely plant-based lifestyle, you know, whereas now we're seeing millions of people who are managing it. And sure, there are challenges, of course there are, but it's getting easier and easier. But also it's getting more and more possible to to take to take your steps further as well. And And actually now it's getting more and more possible to buy from just 100% vegan companies maybe not for everyone for all of their food but in terms of cosmetics certainly you could do that there are definitely enough vegan cosmetic companies out there completely vegan owned online that you can order from and and you could do that in a 100% vegan way and it probably be just as affordable and things are becoming more and more like that so i think it's important for us to revisit this question with some regularity well could i buy from more 100% vegan brands because actually it makes such a difference when you do and these are brands that will these are brands that will champion veganism they won't just sell the product but they will put messages on social media they'll put ads out they'll have books in their cafe corner about veganism they will continue pushing the message about veganism beyond the product they'll have members of staff who are vegan like if you can patronize them 
it makes an even bigger difference than just the money in their bank balance. Um, and so I think the more we can do it, the better. And it's getting easier and easier to do so. Yeah. And one of the things I would say also is that, unfortunately, it's impossible to be 100% vegan in every single action. And what I mean by that is we, we've only spoken about, well, you've mentioned cosmetics now, but there's common situations where, for example, you need to call a taxi. Do you say, oh, do you have a, um, a leather-free taxi? I mean, I will make the comment sometimes if I have to, and I'll just say it, but not not in a bad way. Just saying, you know, by the way, is there any chance I could get a taxi that is not, you know, does not have leather seats? Because yeah. maybe the next time they'll say, okay, it's not only me saying that, but maybe if they get enough people asking for, do you have a taxi that has no leather? or has no leather seats, maybe they'll do a change. So it's just, even though you can't physically do it that time, you're yeah. encouraging it. Yeah, absolutely. Can I just say, Rich, what you need to do is each time you ring up, you need to put a different voice on because then they'll think it's more different people. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, oh, And I'll say, do you mind if I put a, a, a tape or, well, no, gosh, tape, that shows my age. Um, do, you, do you mind just putting this podcast on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, there's more we can do. I mean, something that I've, I've noticed, because I've, I've worked for completely vegan companies, and the impact that they have, when, even when people aren't buying from them. So an, an example would be, a vegan restaurant opens up in a town or a city, far more people walk past that restaurant than ever go in. Okay. But if people know that it's a vegan company, I mean, it doesn't work if people know don't know that it's vegan. But if it says vegan somewhere, or people just know that it's vegan, the fact that it's still there, the fact that it still exists, people walking past it every day, that has a huge impact. Now, obviously, it can't continue to be there every day if they don't get any custom. So the more that we can patronize them and, and and help support them financially, the more that message is getting out, not just to the customers who are buying their fantastic products and services, hopefully, but also to the many more who see them online or who walk past them every day. It, it has a knock-on effect, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, one interesting thing that I've come across recently is a brand or restaurant rather that was synonymous for some of the most cruel practices in terms of the food that they were stocking and supplying has gone completely vegan and it, it, it just shows how how you can't necessarily always just follow these things in a straight line economically um, it was covered on the species unite podcast a couple of weeks ago and it's um, michelin star chef alexi gaultier based in london incredible chef but like animal rights campaigners were outside his restaurant for months and months campaigning to stop him using foie gras and all these horrific cuts of meat and all things like this and basically they won him over um, and he's made his restaurant completely plant-based. And it's it's one of the best restaurants in London. It's incredible. I'm hoping to go next month and make an excuse to to do it, spend all my pocket money in one go. But my point is, like there, you've got you've got a brand who we would say absolutely do not buy from this brand, even if they do do one vegan option. Like they are epitomize everything that is wrong with animal agriculture. And now all of a sudden, almost overnight, it's completely flipped, and they are absolutely pioneering and and being bastions of brilliance in terms of plant based living. He, he's now an ethical vegan, Alexis Gaultier, and despite the fact that they're losing quite a bit of custom 
from their original customers, like they're still championing it. So I, I think it just shows that actually being black and white about these things and sort of refusing to engage at all um, with, with non-vegan companies, we might be missing some opportunities, actually. I don't know. I see it differently because it, it is a vegan company now. I mean, you you it's they haven't been in a duality. You know, it wasn't a vegan company. It might have been one a company that we would have never gone. But the fact that it, it's a vegan company now, I mean, I think we, we were not born vegans. So it's good to, in a way, support those people that do the switch and do the change. I mean, there's also dairy farmers that after 20, 30 years, they've decided I can't do this anymore. It's not right. Yeah, I think the point I'm making, though, is you never know who is just on the edge of flipping over to veganism, even if it doesn't seem like it. So my point is, if there's a company that looks like it's completely non-vegan, maybe they do a plant-based option, but they're they're just, you, you know, using that to make a little bit of money off vegans. They don't really believe in the lifestyle. You never know how close they might be to completely going vegan. And actually, if you just say, nope, you're a non-vegan company, I'm having nothing to do with you, I'm not even talking to you, we might just be missing an opportunity. Yeah, I'd probably miss it. I'll, I'll wait another six months and see if they're vegan. <laughs> Well, that's fine. What we've got then is we've got a double-pronged approach because we're we're assuming here that not everyone behaves in the same way. So actually, some of us just buying from 100% vegan companies, that really benefits the vegan companies. But those of us that, that buy from non-vegan companies too, we're working on that corner as well. It's it's yeah. perfect. What a strategy. I know. I mean, if, a, if someone from a company came to me and say, oh, we're thinking of going fully vegan, great. Send me an email when you've gone fully vegan, you know. <laughs> that's brilliant. I'll be your customer number one. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Okay, come on then, Rich. Let's let's round things off. Let's round things off. Final comments. What do you want to say on this? Where where do you fall down on it? Okay, I'll comment on my behavior because obviously everyone can do their own thing. They should do their own thing. My perspective is I try to choose 100% vegan companies when possible. So that's my first step. Second step is to make sure it's produced in uh, dedicated facilities so there's no cross-contamination. And if none of that exists, well, yeah, I'll get a vegan option from a non-vegan company. But what I'll not do is eat a non-vegan option from a non-vegan company. No, I'm glad you, glad you clarified that. Um, I guess for me personally, that the priority is to be mindful about these things. And I, I don't want to just put spout out a buzzword and, and hope that that does the argument of the point for me. But I think there's arguments for both sides of the fence here. There's arguments for both sides of the fence in terms of how we advocate for animals. You know, do we shout really loudly or do we do, we do things quietly and subtly? Um, and I think that the main thing is if we're thinking about how we go about things, we're most likely to do the thing that is right for us at that time because things can change. Our circumstances can can change. I mean, I, I don't mind saying I don't have a massive amount of disposable income at the moment. A few years ago, I, I, I did have a bit more. So then I could I could afford to spend a bit more on my shoes, getting them imported from Will's vegan shoes or, or, or whoever whereas now I might just have to go to Marks and Spencer's and you know get the get the vegan options there so I, I think so long as you're being mindful about these things and doing the best that you possibly can and where possible that's going to be buying from a, a vegan company but if it's not possible then that's that's fine and just kind of acknowledging that and consolidating that and and knowing that when you can and where you can you will 
and increasing those opportunities uh, that's the things to do but um yeah there's def there's definitely a continuum and as i suggested i'd be much less likely to buy a vegan product from a brand that is really synonymous with exploiting animals um whether it's kfc or even greg's i'm a bit like oh come on man like <laughs> although they're the vegan champions now everyone thinks that they're brilliant for vegans so what do i know but yeah i, I try and be mindful and i try to do the best i can but i don't don't get too cross if i can't by the way andy i do get out of my way to go to certain places just to make sure i buy from them so you're not alone um i'm not expecting everyone to do it but that's my choice i'm happy with it even if i buy less but i buy in the places i like i trust and i do go out of my way can can we just spend a moment there because you actually highlighted something there rich when andy mentioned that the point of of having to kind of go out of your way to to buy those vegan products from the vegan supermarket my my take on that was it costs more financially but also it's he's having to spend money on fuel which adds to it and he's using fuel which is less good for the environment now, obviously, we could say, well, you could just cycle, but then that's taking even more time, isn't it? And the products are still costing more. It, it does just show the complexity of it, doesn't it? If, if we're trying to be ethical minded people, um, and I'm, I'm just thinking as well, I mean, I, I, I don't know Andy's situation at home, but if, if, for example, I was a parent and had a three year old child at home, I'd feel quite bad if I was then spending a two hour round trip going to the supermarket instead of playing with them at home. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's, it's more than just the. Oh, get I've got the, to get the, I've got to get the vegan food from the vegan company. Yeah, get it delivered. Get it delivered. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they, maybe they don't deliver though. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're really like. I know. It, it's a complex situation, but I just wanted to empathise with Andy because I do the same. Sometimes I won't drive, but I used to walk a lot to city centre just to go to my local. Local wasn't local to me, but uh, the one hundred percent vegan shop, and I still go out of my way whenever I can to do so because there's something rewarding about acknowledging the person that's brave enough to start a vegan business despite knowing that probably the customer base will be lower. So yeah, I I I want to reward that whenever I can. I think it's important to acknowledge that actually a lot of us, we might have these thoughts of like, oh, I really want to be able to do that. I really want to be able to help in this way. I really want to be able to buy from these companies, but I can't quite at the moment for whatever reason, whether it's time, resources, finances or accessibility, whatever. But if we if we keep on thinking about it and if all of a sudden that supermarket offers free delivery, bam, Andy's there, he's getting home delivery. If all of a sudden my disposable income goes up by 50 pounds a month. Brilliant. I'm spending, you know, I'm getting a nice pair of vegan shoes from the completely vegan company. So like, even if our intentions can't be acted out just yet, if we're being mindful of it, then there's going to come a time where things just become that little bit easier. And then all of a sudden we can make a much bigger difference. Hopefully, fingers crossed. I'm sounding very optimistic, aren't I? Okay, well, let's leave things there, shall we? So remember, we'd absolutely love to hear your voices too on this podcast. More of that in a moment. But if you want to send us an email, it's enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com. That's where we want to hear your thoughts, your questions, your comments and your concerns regarding any of the news stories or anything else we've covered in this week's episode. Plus, you can get us on the socials. We're at Enough of the Falafel on TikTok, Facebook and Instagram. 
Richard, we are almost at the end of the episode now. Thank you again for being here, for co-hosting with me. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you, Anthony. It's been a pleasure and I'd like to thank all the listeners that have made it so far through the podcast. It's a pleasure that you're still here and I hope you've enjoyed. Indeed, indeed. Richard, shall we give a little sneak preview to next week? We've got a little exciting plan we've been working on for a couple of weeks. Should we let people know? We do, we do. Yeah, please let them know. Okay, so uh, we've we've said every episode that we want to hear more and more voices on the podcast and we are hoping that next week that will be done literally. We're hoping to have a couple of voices join us, not, not just disembodied voices, but actual people um, discussing the news with us. Uh, obviously needs to work technically and we need to get things arranged but that is the plan there will be more than just Richard and myself on the show next week but you'll have to tune in next week to find out if that indeed happens have you already paid the AI software uh, yeah yeah it's sounding a bit robotic but um, I'm hoping with a, a week's more development it can sound a bit more human like anyway we, we need to get going Richard because yeah. you've uh, you've got an exam to revise for haven't you so uh, I know, let's, I know. let's round yes, things up on a Sunday but yeah doing my best to pass the test one for listening i've been richard he's been anthony and this has been episode five of vegan week